Mark chapter 1. <clears throat> On October 26th of last year, uh, one of the world's most famous billionaires walked into a building carrying a sink. Carrying a sink. Some of you remember this? That man was Elon Musk. And the building that he was making this grand entrance into was the Twitter headquarters. Uh, he posted a video of this on his Twitter with the caption, Entering Twitter headquarters, let that sink in. And uh, if you don't understand the play on words, you can ask me later. Uh, basically, he was just rubbing it in to all of his detractors that he finally owned Twitter. And immediately, he began making massive changes to the company. When he was interviewed this last April, he reported that over 6,000 of the company's 8,000 employees, when he took over, over 6,000 of them had been fired uh, since he took over last fall. Uh, that's uh, nearly 80% of the staff. So that was the major change he made, but also he, he, he made changes like uh, asking for a paid subscription to keep that blue check mark that uh, in the past, if you just got a certain number of followers, uh, you would receive that. But now he uh, required this subscription and that made a lot of people upset. Uh, most significantly, recently, he changed the name of the platform to X, uh, which is uh, really quite comical because we're still saying that people are tweeting, but it's on X. And uh, the man has just made all kinds of changes that have enraged a lot of people. But because he owns the company, he has the authority to make whatever changes he wants. And here in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus began his public ministry at the age of 30, when he really stepped on the scene and set up his headquarters in Galilee, he did not commemorate the occasion with a meme or a post of a video on Twitter, but he did show from the very beginning that as the worthy Son of God, whom we spoke about last week, the one who is worthy of our devotion, of our worship, the only one worthy or capable of saving humanity, that he, as the worthy son of God, he, he makes clear here in this first chapter that he has the right to make some major changes in our world. And the question is for us as Christians, have we let that sink in? That Christ has arrived, that the promised Messiah has come, to make major changes in your world and mine? And have we let him make these changes is the question that we need to ask ourselves. But first, before we get into the text, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and its power to reveal to us who you are and to show us how we can have an abundant relationship with you. We thank you so much that we Read from these pages of your dear son who came to earth to live a perfect life on our behalf and die on the cross for our sins. And we thank you that because he rose again, because he lives, we have this certain hope of eternal life. And Lord, we thank you that he has come to change everything about our world. And Father, we pray that as we look at this text tonight, your Holy Spirit would be the true teacher that he would guide every word that is spoken from this pulpit, that you give me clarity of thought and of speech, 
And Father, would you please show us very clearly and vividly these changes that Christ has the authority to make in our world. And Father, we pray that where we have not been submitted to his authority, where we have not let him make these changes, we pray that you would help us tonight to repent and believe the gospel and begin to follow Christ in these areas. Oh, please, work in our hearts tonight in a way that only you can. Oh, how we need you. Without you, we can do nothing. So please help us in this hour, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're taking notes tonight and we're looking at these changes that Christ is authorized, that he has the authority to make in our world, number one, if you're taking notes, Christ is authorized. He has the authority to change the way we think. The way we think. Could you look with me at our text, Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. Lord Jesus, it says of him, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Christ is just beginning his public ministry. These are the first words that he will preach to a crowd that has gathered there in Galilee to hear him. And what does he say? The, kingdom, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye. That word repent, it literally means to change one's mind, to change how one thinks. And Christ came to this earth to change our minds, to change the way we think about some critical things. First, he came to change the way we think about time and eternity. About time and eternity. Notice that he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. We talked about this last week, but for centuries the Jews had been waiting for this promised seed, the one who would defeat Satan and release us from the curse of sin, the one who would bring blessing to all nations, the one who would rule on David's throne. And here he says, the time is fulfilled. The wait is over. The kingdom of God is near. I am bringing it in my very person. The wait was finally over. The Messiah had come. God's kingdom was at hand. We read in Galatians 4, verse 4, a similar statement. But the Bible says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And then in Ephesians 1.10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, when everything came to that climax, he might gather together in all it, uh, gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Christian, what we need to understand tonight is that time was created by God as a means to fulfill his purposes for creation. Time is in God's hands. And everything that happens in our world happens according to God's schedule. That doesn't mean that God... Uh, is the author of everything that happens. He, he doesn't create or, 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 or make bad things that happen, but he can allow free will and yet have his perfect schedule go forth. And the Bible says when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth 
his son. So everything in the Old Testament had been building and building and building up until the moment that Christ arrived. And what the Old Testament had been predicting was culminated in the arrival of Christ. And everything written in the New Testament will ultimately culminate in Christ's second coming. And so you know how Christ wants to change the way we think? He wants us to understand that his Father is in control of time and eternity. That we are living in a universe, yes, it, it sometimes might feel chaotic and like things are out of control, but God is sovereign. His plans are going on as scheduled. And we need to understand that all of humanity is on a collision course with the Son of God. And the way God would have us think about time and eternity is that time, this short life that we have down here, is preparation for eternity. That the short years that we have on this earth are preparation for the day when we will meet the God who rules over this universe. For us as believers, that day that we, that we stand before him and give account for our lives, it'll be the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad. We're not going to be judged for our sins because as believers in Jesus Christ, he's already taken all of our sins with him to the grave. They've already been judged, but we will be judged according to our works from that day forward whether they were good and pleasing and glorifying to God, or whether they were worthless. And we will be rewarded accordingly. One day, this collision course with all of humanity, when all of humanity will stand before God, Philippians 2, speaks of how God has highly exalted His Son, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Every human being will bow before the Son of God. And every human being will make the choice to bow to Him now or bow to Him then. But every knee will bow. Revelation 20, the Bible says in verses 11 and 12, I saw a great white throne and Him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great. It won't matter where you lived, what your income was, what job you had, uh, how many degrees you had tacked onto your name. Small and great will stand before God and will be judged out of the books, the records that God has kept for all of our deeds. And those who have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be lost for all of eternity in an awful place called hell. Not because God is cruel or unkind, but because they willfully rejected his offer of salvation in the time that they had down here to prepare for eternity. Christian, we must understand that our time is short. Our time is short. It doesn't matter if you're young or you're old. The Bible says in James 4, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then vanisheth away. We understand from 1 Corinthians 15 that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the dead shall be raised incorruptible. We're going to stand before God in a moment. 
It could be this evening. It could be while we are looking at God's word together. Our time is short. And every moment we have down here is to be spent preparing for all of eternity and getting ready for that day when we will see God face to face. Now, what is God doing in the world today, and, and how is he preparing us? Well, in Ephesians 5, verse 27, this is his desire for us as believers, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So Christ wants to change our mind about time and eternity, why we're here, and he wants us to see that we're all getting ready for that great day, that great wedding day, when the church is finally presented to Christ, when the bride is finally presented to the bridegroom. And every day of our lives down here is to be preparation for that moment. I remember leading up to my wedding, you know, I'm the groom, but it's similar thoughts. You're, you're trying to get ready for that day. You want to be in shape. You want to have the house ready. I remember we were painting the house. We were doing all kinds of renovation, getting ready for that wedding day. I was doing, uh, doing sit-ups. I was doing push-ups. I wanted to be fit. I didn't want to look like a slob. And every day of our lives down here is meant to be preparing for the day when we see Christ. And this is why Christ must also change our mind not only about time and eternity, but about ourselves. You see, as human beings, we tend to have a higher view of ourselves than what is actually true. You know, one of our soul winners uh, recently reported that he was trying to give the gospel to a group of teenagers, and one of those teens said, I'm not a sinner, a teenager. Now, of all the people in the world, because I've been there, I, it wasn't long ago I was one, teenagers were about the biggest sinners of all, okay? I'm not a sinner. This is why you'll, you'll, you'll have uh, preachers go into prisons to preach the gospel and ask inmates, do you think you're going to go to heaven? And they'll, they'll have people say, yes. And then Pastor Odom will ask them, why? And they'll say, because I'm a good person. Then why are you sitting in jail? It's because we all have this, this view of ourselves that isn't entirely accurate. And we all think of ourselves as better than we really are. And that's why Christ came and arrived on the scene and said, repent. Change your mind. And remember this this baptism of John, it was a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. We need to change our mind and recognize, I am not ready to meet God in my current state. Every sinner needs to have a time in their life where they recognize, if I meet God in my current state on my own, I will deserve to die because of my sin. And I've got to have Jesus Christ wash away my sin if I'm ever going to have the chance of entering the presence of his Holy Father. So we all have to have that moment in our lives. But Christian, this statement that Jesus made at the outset of his ministry, repent and believe the gospel, that is for you and me to take to heart every day of our lives. Because you know what God does after we get saved? He doesn't say, just sit on your laurels, just mill around on earth until your life is through. No, 
He asks, us, he asks us to cooperate with what he's doing, to be transformed into the image of his son. And you know a key component of that? In Romans chapter 12, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Every day as we open this book, God wants to show us things about, our, about ourselves that aren't right. And as we look into the scripture and we say, wow, that attitude I've been having, that way I've been thinking, that lie I've been believing, that sin that I've been engaged in, it's wrong. And he wants us on a daily basis to change our mind about ourselves and about our sin and to believe the gospel that in Jesus Christ there's forgiveness and there's victory over whatever sin I might be struggling in. On a daily basis, God wants us to repent, change our mind about it, and believe the glorious gospel that in Jesus Christ, I can have victory, that I am forgiven, that I am no longer a slave to sin. Repent and believe the gospel. Christ has the authority to change the way we think. Christian, can I ask you, have you come to the place in your life where on a daily basis you are consciously aware of how desperately you need Jesus? If we haven't come to the place where we, when we pray in the morning, there's a sense of desperation in our hearts. Lord God, if you don't help me, today will be a failure. Today will be a train wreck. I've got to have your help. Have we come to the place in our life where we are desperate for Christ to help us? Where we're desperate for the power of the gospel because we know we cannot overcome these sins on our own? Christ has the authority to change the way we think. Number two, he has the, the authority to change the way we live. Change the way we live. Notice verse 16 of our text. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. I love that. It says he saw them. No matter what's going on in your world right now or how insignificant you might feel that you are, the Lord Jesus sees you, and he cares about you as an individual, and he has a glorious plan for your life. You are not a number to him. You are not lost in any crowd. He sees you just like he saw Simon and just like he saw Andrew. Verse 17, And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me. And I love this. When you understand the original word there, it's an interjection. He's trying to get their attention. He says, Come here. Come here, and I will make you to become fishers of men. That word become, it means to experience a change in nature and so indicate entry into a new condition to become something else, something different. He said, you come after me, I'm going to change who you are. You keep reading this text and keep reading the gospel according to Mark. We don't have time, but he, after this, he calls James the son of Jebedee and, and John his brother. It says he called them. That means to summon them with authority. And you find that one moment, they're fishermen. That's their livelihood. That's their life. That's who they are. Every day they cast nets into the sea, try to catch fish, and then they sell them at the market. That's their life. And then after Jesus shows up 
and calls them to himself, the text says straightway they forsook their nets. It says of James and John, whose, whose father had this great business, they had hired servants, there was wealth there. It says they left their father. They forsook everything about their old life, began following Jesus, and instead of fishing, now they're traveling with Jesus as he's going through Galilee preaching. And instead of being fishermen, now they are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ who are becoming fishers of men. Now, let me ask you, how many of you think that if you were Peter or Simon or Andrew or James or John, that you would feel pretty lucky, you would feel pretty special if the Messiah that your, your brethren that you, and you had been waiting for for centuries had finally arrived and he chose you to be his disciple. Of all the people in Israel, he handpicked you to be a special follower. How many of us think that when we read this, wow, these guys are pretty lucky. These guys are pretty special. And how many of us think, I think they made the right decision. I think giving up fishing was worth it. I think leading thousands to Christ at Pentecost, which is what Peter did, was worth the sacrifice of forsaking the nets. I think when we look at these men, we think, wow, how lucky, how special they were. Let me ask you, why do we look at the Lord Jesus as some despotic, cruel ruler when he asks us to forsake all and follow him? When he puts his finger on something in our lives and he says, I need you to give that up if you're going to follow me. Why do we balk? Why do we argue? Why do we hesitate? The unfathomable act of condescension for the God of glory, God's son, to leave heaven and come to these stinky fishermen and ask them to follow him, to ask them to live with him, with all their nonsense and all the crazy things they said and that they did. It is no less an act of glorious grace for the Son of God to come into your life and my life and summon us to follow Him. What a privilege that of all the people He would choose me, He would choose you to be His follower. We also see from the text here, and you can write this down in your notes, this is the only thing you write down, it'd be worth it. Following him equals transformation. Following him equals transformation. A, a total change in the way that we live. These guys went from being fishermen to traveling disciples. A radical change. When it says they forsook their nets, that's like a computer programmer. He chucked his computer. That's like a construction worker. He left his tools. They left everything. It was a radical change of life. And Christian, can I ask you, and I must ask myself, the people that live around us, would they say that there has been a radical change change in our lives because we met Jesus? 
Peter, when, when you get to the book of Acts, he preaches the gospel to Gentiles. He hangs out with Gentiles, which was absolutely forbidden as Jews. And he gets back to Jerusalem, and all the brethren are mad at him. They're saying, what are you doing? Peter never would have ever thought of preaching to Gentiles or being in their presence. But Christ radically changed who he was and how he viewed the world and how he viewed himself. Could the people in our lives say that they've witnessed a radical change in us? I look around the world, uh, this room and I'm, I'm thrilled because I see face after face after face of, of people who just in the time I've known them are radically different than how I once knew them. I'm so thankful that the woman that I live with now is not the same woman that I married. And yes, she has the same name, don't worry. <laughs> but she's radically different. Why? Because Jesus is real in her life. And he's making a change. And, you know, the greatest way that Jesus changes us is through trials and three years of living with me. Uh, that's probably contributed to that. The constant trial. But husbands, wives, we should ask ourselves, does my spouse, can they see a radical difference in me because of what Christ has done in my life? I also want you to see from this test, text that when Jesus came to these men and called them to himself he didn't apologize for interrupting what they were doing he didn't come and say James and John I know you got a prolific fishing career you've got this bright future I'm really sorry to interrupt I mean you're mending your nets that's what it says they were currently meant they were in the middle of an important job but we don't hear the Lord saying, I'm sorry for interrupting you. I'm sorry for, for asking you to leave it all. He just summons them and they immediately obey. And Christian, can I urge you to quit postponing the decision to just surrender all to Christ? Because I know from personal experience, the longer you postpone that decision, the harder it becomes to make. The more you harden your heart to the Savior, the harder it's going to become to soften that heart. Quit postponing it. Now, why do so many not forsake everything to follow Christ? We'll finish with this. I believe it's because they don't really know who Jesus is. Oh, yes, they go to church. Oh, yes, they read their Bible. Oh, yes, maybe they've, they've gone to some kind of uh, Bible program. But they don't really know Jesus. Look at our text. Verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. They were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as his scribes. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, a man possessed with the devil, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Verse 25, And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. Verse 27, and they were all amazed. 
insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. Now, Christian, the unclean spirits, these devils, these demons, because they knew who Jesus was, did not hesitate to obey him. They trembled in his presence. They were fearful to do anything against him, knowing that he had the power to destroy them. So if you and I don't treat the Lord with a similar kind of reverence and aren't quick to obey him, either we don't know who he is. This unclean spirit knew who Jesus was. And that's why he obeyed. Because you don't mess with the creator of the universe. You don't backtalk the Son of God. Because he knew who Jesus was, he obeyed. So if we're not obeying, either we don't really know who Jesus is, or we're functioning as the most foolish creatures in the universe. Because even the demons tremble before him and obey what he tells them to do. Christian, the Son of God has come. And he's come to radically change the way we think and the way we live. And I wonder, have we let that sink in? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your unfathomable condescension, you sent your son to this earth to bring us to yourself. And you love each one of us here tonight more than we could ever imagine, more than we could ever deserve. And we thank you that in your love, you call us to yourself into this abundant relationship with you where every day we're getting to know you better and preparing with eager anticipation for the day that we get to meet you. But, oh God, if we're just living like the rest of the world, if we're just thinking like everybody else, if we haven't allowed Jesus to change the way we think and how we live, oh, we pray that your Holy Spirit will work in our hearts now and bring us to repentance, to the acknowledging of the truth. Oh God, we pray that from what we've heard tonight, you would change the way we think and change the way we live. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As the piano plays...